This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week we focus on just one issue, but it's a big one. Any day now, Cabinet Ministers will be weighing up how to fund public broadcasting in the years ahead and whether it ought to roll out a brand new public media organisation to do it. This week, Media Watch looks at how three other countries do their public broadcasting, what we could learn from them, and what people there actually get for their money. The fate of RNZ and TVNZ may soon be in the hands of Cabinet Ministers as they consider a proposal to disestablish both broadcasters and create an entity, a new, a new public media entity, uh, an entirely new public media entity. The government is moving on plans for public broadcasting in New Zealand as the media industry faces an uncertain future. Corin Dan there, introducing an edition of RNZ's Morning Report last month with a scoop from political editor Jane Patterson, which startled both RNZ listeners and the staff of the broadcaster itself. Representatives from RNZ, TVNZ and a number of senior public agencies, including the Treasury, the State Services Commission, Tapuni Kōkiri and the Prime Minister's Department. Now, this advisory group concluded that the status quo was unsustainable and it collectively recommended the government agree to disestablish establish TVNZ and RNZ and to establish a new public media entity. And that was the biggest hint so far of what the government might announce before the end of the year after an ongoing review of its policy for funding public broadcasting and media. The idea was for a not-for-profit one-stop shop for public media, which would be partly commercial and partly non-commercial. And the Minister of Broadcasting, Communications and Digital Media, Chris Farfoy, described RNZ reports about the plan as unhelpful. I am not going to go into any detail until I've had a discussion with my Cabinet colleagues and made a decision. At the moment, um, we've made, as I say, we've made no secret that we're looking at it. Once a decision is made, I'll answer some of those questions. Well, that decision, whatever it turns out to be, is expected before Christmas, and how it's all to be funded is a big question. Currently, the government spends about $240 million on broadcasting each year, including about $40 million for Radio New Zealand, and state-owned TVNZ earns around $300 million in advertising each year. The proposal leaked to RNZ, though, refers to a mixed funding model with some money from the Crown and also some from advertising, sponsorship and subscriptions. But when Labour went into the last election, it was Australia's public broadcaster, the ABC, which was the model they mentioned. The ABC does radio, TV and online content without any adverts at all. And recently, a former director of the ABC, Quentin Dempster, told Media Watch that he had to fight attempts to make the ABC commercial in the past, and he reckons New Zealanders should do the same now. My biggest uh, contribution was to maintain the integrity of the organisation through the backdoor sponsorship uh, for product placement and advertorial type material, which the audience could see was wrong. My other biggest contribution was the ABC's commercial operations at that time to start a pay TV news channel. Uh, that would have commercialised the ABC and before too long the commercial uh, tail would have been wagging the charter dog and uh, I held the line for that and the ABC eventually bailed out of uh, uh, pay television news. The ABC has its own uh, independent uh, channel uh, I, we kept the ABC on the straight and narrow of its charter responsibilities and uh, 
funded by the taxpayers of Australia and not going down the commercial road. There was a big effort in the 1990s to get the ABC television in particular to take advertising. I know TVNZ took advertising. I think that's disastrous for uh, uh, television public broadcasting in New Zealand. Canada did it as well. Uh, it's uh, it's not the way a public broadcaster should go. If you ever be a- were able to get rid of advertising on uh, uh, TVNZ, that would be a very good thing, and there should be agitation for it because the the purest form of public broadcasting is one where the corpus of users, the taxpayers of a country, uh, pay for the public broadcaster to the extent necessary, and it should be the uh, TVNZ's contribution uh, for the people of New Zealand. Quentin Dempster, a former director of Australia's public broadcaster, the ABC. But what he called a pure form of public broadcasting comes with a hefty price tag. Australian taxpayers pay more than $1 billion Australian dollars a year for the ABC and more money for SBS, a multi-platform outlet for Ethnic Australia, which does play some commercials on its TV channels to balance the books. So what is it then that Aussies get for their billion dollars plus? I asked Dennis Muller, a New Zealand-born journalist who was an editor for many years at the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age newspaper in Melbourne, and who's now a fellow at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. Well, they get a 24-hour news service on radio and television. They get an international radio broadcasting service to Asia and the Pacific called Radio Australia. They get six television channels um, on the ABC alone, plus uh, another, I think it's two on SBS. They include not just your general uh, main television channels that carry news and drama and uh, general programming, but also specialist ones such as comedy and as a special kids channel. Uh, They get a network of eight metropolitan and 52 regional radio networks, They get a streaming service on the ABC called iView and one on SBS called On Demand. I think most importantly in many respects, uh, um, they get some of Australia's best investigative journalism, particularly on Four Corners on ABC television and programs like Background Briefing on Radio National. So that's basically what uh, the taxpayer gets for his billion dollars a year. Broadly speaking, given that it costs a billion dollars, which sounds like a lot, are the public you know, happy and satisfied with, with what they get? Do they get, think they get value for money? Yeah, they do, and they've thought it for a long time. Back in 2011, I compiled a heap of data for a public inquiry into media regulation here called the Finkelstein Inquiry, and I looked at, at uh, data about trust in media going back to 1950, sort of 80% of people trust the ABC generally and about 90% trust its news service. And that has been part of a pattern for a long time and miles ahead of trust in any other media in Australia. But in terms of the fact that they serve not just, you know, metropolitan Australia, but the regions, of course, we have to remember it's a big country and parts of it are pretty sparse. There's, there's regional and local radio services and that's, that's pretty much baked into the model, isn't it? Oh, absolutely it is, yeah. It's it's an absolutely crucial part of it and becoming more so uh, as uh, traditional media come under increasing pressure from the digital revolution. I broadcast a weekly program out of Ballarat to regional Victoria and southern New South Wales, and in that area we've seen consolidation of TV newsrooms in newsrooms a long way away from the areas they're serving. We've seen 
cuts in staff to the regional newspapers. And so as time goes by, that regional broadcasting service provided by the ABC has become increasingly important. So is this current system where you have the ABC broadcasting countrywide and on all these platforms, and then, of course, as you mentioned, you've also got uh, SBS, you know, another television and and radio service which is specifically uh, serving ethnic Australians. Um, um, Is that stable and set to continue? Is there any kind of political momentum or desire to tinker with that? Not to tinker with the general structure, no. But the whole issue of funding for public sector broadcasting is a political football, and it seems to be always being kicked around. For about the past, what, uh, since about 2016, uh, the ABC has had its budget uh, repeatedly cut. The whole question of funding for public broadcasting, and in particular the ABC, is a recurring political issue. Successive federal governments, from where the money comes, have used funding as a way of punishing the ABC when they don't like what it does, when it embarrasses them, basically. So the idea of having advertising on the ABC is absolutely anathema to Australians. Uh, They like the ABC as it is, thank you. They've accepted it on SBS because, in a sense, it came with the package. So people adapted to it, and there are rules that prevent SBS having advertisements every couple of minutes, as the commercials do. But it's never quite gone away because every now and again uh, some bunch of politicians will get the idea that the ABC, for example, should be privatised. Only last year uh, the New South Wales branch of the Liberal Party, which is the party in government here, uh, voted to privatise the ABC, but immediately there was such a human cry that, um, that the federal government repudiated it. A big call by a local branch of a governing political party to call Yeah, for... it made a big story. It happened on a Sunday, so you can imagine it's a huge story on the Monday morning papers, there being no other news around. And, and I think, uh, actually, the ads on the SBS channel that you mentioned there, that might have actually been uh, a bit of New Zealand input into that because a couple of former TVNZ executives, I think, presided over that. But I think for some time of the day, it's only between the programs. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Uh, They have quite strict rules. They've got to place their ads in blocks. They're only uh, allowed to have a limited number of minutes per hour given given to the advertisements. Uh, And basically, they have to be on the hour and the half hour, broadly speaking. So you get a good run at viewing. And in fact, the reputation of the SBS hasn't been harmed by this, I think, because it came with the package, as I said. The um, SBS has proved itself to be a, a pretty high-quality channel of, of pretty broad interest, not just to the ethnic communities. Uh, and, of course, they have an SBS radio service as well, which broadcasts in multiple languages. So they, they've managed to create a reputation for themselves for, uh, for high-quality journalism and general content, and advertising doesn't appear to have tainted that reputation. But I think it's because it was there already. Now, in the public broadcaster that that covers all media, ABC, uh, the television wing of it, I would guess, is the one that has the big big bucks involved in it. But there, it's very different to New Zealand, isn't it? Because ABC television is up against three big, long-established commercial networks, 7, 9 and 10. Uh, It seems that the ABC can command between, say, about 13, 14%, give or take, of the metropolitan, the urban audience, and it's higher in the regional uh, audience, 17, 18%. And that seems fairly 
constant over the last four or five years. In, in New Zealand, it's very much the opposite. TVNZ, state-owned but highly commercial, really dominates the market. Is it tough politically for the ABC really kind of serving a minority of viewers? No, it isn't really because it's always been so. ABC Broadcasting has, A, not had advertisements, and B, has always appealed to what you might think of as a sort of the broadsheet audience, the same people who read The Age, The Sydney Morning Herald, The New Zealand Herald, those sort of newspapers, uh, and there's a hell of a lot less of them, or fewer of them, I should say, than there are of people who will read uh, tabloid newspapers or watch tabloid television. So it's really a matter of demographics. And it's never really been an issue except every now and again when people say, well, the ABC isn't relevant. Well, uh, the relevancy argument never seems to fly because people realise that the ABC, in fact, does work that the commercials would never do, particularly at the high end of investigative journalism and at having a really extensive foreign correspondence network. So you get an Australian perspective on global events. These are things that the commercials don't do. And so the fact that it's just about numbers has never, in the end, been very decisive. And uh, one stat in the latest ABC annual report, which startled me, but perhaps it shouldn't, the average Australian household has, it says, 17 media-capable uh, digital devices. So, um, I mean, of course, public broadcasters, a lot of them around the world have built up big, uh, big um, audiences and loyalties for their radio and television. Some have been quick to go digital, others not. Some actually discouraged from doing that because it's thought it, it could be a market opportunity for someone. Uh, how about in Australia? Has uh, public broadcasting kept up with digital developments? Yes, they have, but it's been messy because it's been retrofitted to organisations that were fundamentally television and radio broadcasters and one of the problems of with retrofitting something like digital to that is that digital requires you to get involved in long-form written journalism. Well, broadcasters don't, don't do long-form written journalism, or well, they used not to. Um, they've had some problems on the technical side. For instance, I had to, just the other day, go and buy a new radio because the digital radio that I bought when the ABC went digital didn't actually give me a feed from the main Melbourne local ABC radio station, 774. Digital has been sort of messy at both the technical and the uh, editorial policy levels. Now, I've heard Australian pundits, Dennis, warning that uh, Australian commercial television is unsustainable. So these big brands I mentioned, 7, 9, 10, we think of them as, as very big uh, commercial beasts with a big presence in the market. Uh, but you know, we've heard these pundits saying, look, in future you could have a landscape in Australia where it's just the state-funded stuff, and specifically ABC, and uh, maybe Rupert Murdoch's News Limited because you know he's prepared to, to put money and backing into that, and they will be the two pillars of Australian media. Is that scenario actually likely? I think it's too soon to say, and I certainly think it's too soon to write off commercial free-to-air television. There's already quite a big push on, not just in Australia, but in the US and, and in Europe, to impose some regulation on the global giants, on Facebook and YouTube and Google and Twitter and the rest. We just had a report by the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission uh, about the uh, looking at the competitive aspects of the global platforms, uh, and they've produced a whole raft of recommendations around this kind of thing, which, if the government implements it, and we don't know whether they will, uh, will have 
quite significant consequences for the cost structure uh, and for the competitive environment. On top of that, who knows what technical changes uh, or, or revolutions are around the corner. So I think it's a bit too soon to be writing off commercial free-to-air TV, but certainly if current trends continued, uh, then they would be in, in serious trouble. And actually, that is an issue for us here in New Zealand, given that uh, the Nine Network uh, is now the owner of Stuff, our biggest newspaper company, even though it doesn't want to be. It's trying to sell it and can't. So that uh, that company's fortunes in particular uh, will have an impact on us. Yes. Uh, but, but here, as we mentioned, the government is now considering uh, this proposal um, to create a new public media entity um, which would replace non-commercial RNZ, where I'm speaking to you from now, and highly commercial TVNZ, which which really dominates the free-to-air market. Do you think that sounds like something that is a good thing because it would create something closer to the ABC? Well, it would very much depend on how it was done, but I think the old days of silos, of, of thinking of digital, radio, television and print as separate are over. Uh, it, it's, it now has to be whatever structure is adopted uh, has got to be a structure that can accommodate all of those. Um, now, there would certainly be concerns about the effect of merging a non-commercial with a commercial organisation, but it's not an insuperable problem in my view because newspapers, good newspapers, have been doing this for decades, uh, separating the commercial side of the operation from the editorial side at the Asian Sydney Morning Herald, where I worked for 23 years, had an extremely strict editorial culture. There was absolutely no influence of the advertising uh, or commercial side of the business on editorial decision-making. And it was, uh, myself included, the journalists were extremely prickly about it, and it had strong cultures and strong editorial leadership. So I don't think it's an insuperable problem. But certainly you need to go into that with your eyes open to make sure that you were protecting the integrity of both the news service and the program content from the taint of, uh, of advertising interests. Dennis Muller, a New Zealander and now a fellow at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. But as we heard from Dennis there, about 25 million Australians pay the billion-dollar-a-year bill for the ABC out of their taxes – but in Ireland, where the population is about the same size as ours, advertising and commercial income has long been part of the mix for their public broadcaster, RTE, which encompasses TV, radio and digital media. RTE's total revenue is about $580 million New Zealand dollars a year, and more than $300 million of that comes from households paying a licence fee, like we used to do here until 1990. But lately, RTE has been struggling to balance its books because the advertising income has slumped from a peak of more than $400 million in 2007 to less than $260 million last year. And RTE News lately has had to report on its own financial crisis like this. A stark shake-up at RTE with news of job losses and pay cuts. After being leaked last night by the Irish Times, this morning RTE's Director-General Dee Forbes said it was regrettable in how its major restructuring plan was revealed. Sean McKenna spent five years working at RNZ. He's now back home in Ireland working as a journalist, including a recent stint at RTE. So we asked him what do the Irish get for their annual €160 Euro licence fee, which adds up to about €275 New Zealand dollars. 
Well, that's the big question at the moment. Uh, for that money, you get three different strands of RTE content. So you get RTE TV, uh, which is uh, two different channels, RTE 1 and RTE 2. You get RTE Radio, and they have, uh, well, they had up until recently about five different uh, channels, main ones, and then also a selection of digital channels. Uh, that's the, the equivalent, really, of RNZ National is RT Radio 1, uh, so mainly speech-driven and, uh, I suppose, a slightly older demographic. Uh, you also have 2FM, which is aimed at a youth market, and there is Lyric FM, which is the equivalent of RNZ Concert, so largely classical music and features. And then there's also Radio Nagueltakta, which is the Irish language radio station. Uh, in addition to that, as well as TV and radio, you have uh, the online side of things. So you have uh, the RTE website and you also have RTE Player, which lets you watch the content from, from TV and radio online. And as well as that, if you're into orchestras, um, they also, the license fee funds a couple of orchestras and a couple of choirs uh, as well. So that's the that's what RTE covers. So it's it's a lot of... It's a lot of different content and trying to please uh, quite a, a large audience. Mm, that sounds a pretty comprehensive offering, although I gather there's a bit of a financial crisis at RT at the moment, partly uh, that's due to do with uh, the advertising income slumping a bit, but also because um, there's a bit of avoidance of paying that licence fee, so some people not, not willing to do it. Yeah, so the annual €160 Euro that people have to pay, that's administered through the National Post Office, uh, the National Post Service called On Post. And they say that in Ireland, there's one of the highest avoidance rates in terms of not paying that license fee. So people not coughing up for for the license. And the other side of it is that there's a lot of people who might be watching content online, on their laptops, on their phones, and so on, and not necessarily paying the fee. So RTE, only a few weeks ago, announced that they're going to have to implement significant cuts. They're talking about cutting 200 staff uh, out of about 2,000 staff overall. Um, so cutting 200 staff, they're closing down a studio in Limerick, where one of the stations is located currently they're going to relocate the station but they're closing the studio itself so there's a whole raft of cuts and they've even sold off a couple of their their paintings so they had some some paintings on the wall over an rte by noted irish artists and they even sent those off for for auction uh, whether that's symbolic i don't i don't think it raised a huge amount of money but they're looking at making cuts of 60 million euro over the next three years so obviously RTE are um, going to the government and expressing to them that they're in a, a dire state or certainly that's what they uh, want to communicate to the public and to the government and in response to that the government has said that they're largely supportive of public service broadcasting, as governments often do. But at the same time, they say that reform is needed. Uh, but the licence fee system, they're also talking about bringing in a, a new 
um, a new policy, but it's not going to happen for a number of years. And that would be, instead of a license fee for anyone who owns a television, it would be a fee for a device, so a charge for uh, any device you may own. So in, in a household, if you have a, a smartphone, a laptop, and you watch that content, they're talking further down the line, that's how it would be administered. But that's potentially seven years away, so the government has put it on the long finger. Sure. And I guess the people who aren't willing to pay their fee, I guess they're voting with their wallets. But um, in general, the public supports and is, believe they get value for money from RTE and what it provides? You hear mixed reports, of course. One of the criticisms you hear is about some of the content. It could be argued that some of the content on RTE television is seen as very similar formats to what we can also get from UK television, but diluted down somewhat. And people question whether that's in line with the public service ethos of the organisation, whether making doing a remake of Dancing with the Stars is, is in line with public service broadcasting. But then it becomes more about you know, to what extent is entertainment a part of public service media these days? The second main criticism you hear from from the public and from speaking with people is the presenter salaries. And that seems to be a particular bugbear. So you have the top presenter on RT radio and television. He's a guy called Ryan Tuberty, and he does a a weekday one-hour radio program and also a Friday evening chat show called The Late Late Show, which is an Irish television institution. It's been around for a long, long time. For this, he gets €495,000, so that works out at around about 850000 New Zealand dollars. That's his, his salary. And there are about 10 presenters in... Yeah, on salaries over 300,000 New Zealand dollars a year. So in comparison with the likes of the Irish Prime Minister, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar, it's a significant uh, salary. Hmm, sounds good. So, um, Sean, get your spare room ready. I think I'm coming over with my CV in my hand. Well, that's it, Colin. I mean, I, you know, I can... Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll put in a word to uh, Ryan Tuberty for you and uh, I'm sure he can well the, the bad news unfortunately for presenter salaries is that uh, with this recent news of cuts taking place uh, RTE have said they're going to cut staff numbers but they also have said that these top presenter salaries are going to take a 15% cut and this is in addition to back in 2012 during the recession when the top presenter salaries they had to take a 30% cut. So you may have missed the boat in terms of the, the timing. You, you should have come over during the recession. Uh, okay, I should have listened to you then. But, Sean, one of the interesting things about RTE for us is that, as you've heard, there's talk of a, a new public broadcasting entity in New Zealand. This is something that government's considering uh, that will have, they say, uh, under this proposal, a mixed funding model, some public money, but also ads, sponsorship, possibly even subscriptions. Now, RTE has um, advertising on its main television channels, I think. Is is it something that the public is bothered by, or do people just consider it part of the mix now? It's part of the mix. It's part of the the media landscape here. And if you were to watch RTE 1 television or RTE 2, 
they would look like any other commercial TV channel in terms of the amount of advertising. And similarly on on radio, probably not so much advertising, but you have programs that may be sponsored by a business program sponsored by a bank or a, a phone-in show sponsored by a particular brand of car. Uh, certainly compared to ORNZ National, it's a breath of fresh air not having to listen to those ads, but it's it's what people grew up with here. It's what they're familiar with. And I mean, you, it's, you, you'll it's, remember, Sean, how uh, heavily commercial television New Zealand's channels were, and indeed the programming was designed to attract advertising, highly commercial. This is what people are wondering, well, how are we going to mash together these non-advertising um, public broadcasting on the radio and a highly commercial television? Does, it, does the advertising on RT change the nature of the programming as well and make it more of a, a attractive to advertisers sort of programming rather than a, of a public service nature? I think at the moment, from RTE's perspective, anything they can do to attract advertisers and that they will do, uh, in terms of the, the content itself, I, I don't think it fundamentally changes the content. RTE television has a strong news and current affairs presence, and as does RTE radios. So I think that it's it's... It hasn't necessarily been designed for advertisers to to appeal to them, but it's always been part of the, the mix. And from when RTE was established, advertising was always part of it. And in terms of that breakdown, about half comes from the license fee and uh, half of their funding comes from, from advertising. So that's the problem they, they face at the moment. And, and is there a cultural problem, so far as you know, within the broadcaster? Do they successfully coexist, these, these ones that have to accommodate commercials and the parts of the RTE that, that don't? You don't notice a lot of uh, issues in relation to that. There's a lot of cross-pollination in terms of the presenters. So a lot of the presenters would do a radio show and a TV show, for example. And there's also within the organization a lot of cross-promotion. And that's sometimes a criticism in that you'll have a, a guest on a radio program who's promoting a, a TV show that's on RTE television that evening. And so there's a lot of that cross-promotion and that can come across as somewhat of a, a bubble. Um, and on the actual RTE campus itself, the radio building is down one end and the TV building is down the other end. And uh, they, they very much seem like different, uh, yeah, dif different ends of the spectrum. Although <laughs> as, a, as, as an organization, they, uh, they, they do seem to, you know, to uh, equip themselves quite well, but they just have a lot of ground to cover. And, if I mean, obviously they're 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 holding out their their bowl to the government, wanting an increase in in funding. But uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens further down the track in another five years. And what what state are are they going to be in? And if you actually look at the their books in the annual report, and um, they aren't actually making a huge deficit. So the the, the books are reasonably balanced, but. Like like any media organization or public service media organization, uh, sometimes you need to make the the right noises politically to to guess you know uh, the funding that's required. And finally, Sean, having worked at 
public broadcasters both in New Zealand here at RNZ and, and in Ireland at RTE. Uh, any advice for our Minister of Broadcasting, Chris Farfoy, who's uh, considering this proposal of possibly creating a new uh, public entity, a brand new one? Uh, well, far be it for me to uh, advise a New Zealand government minister on, on, on such a matter. Um, I think public service media organisations around the world are facing the same challenges. So I think everyone is trying to figure out a solution to the same problems. Sean McKenna, Irish journalist and former RNZ producer, now based in Dublin. Now, like Ireland, Canada's national broadcaster, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, produces radio, television and digital content, and it gets some revenue from advertising too. And it also has something similar to New Zealand On Air, the Canada Media Fund, which mixes government funding and levies collected from subscription TV and streaming services. And that covers the cost of dramas that are screened on commercial Canadian TV channels and the public CBC. A show about clones brought an Emmy to the prairies. Toronto became a dystopian world for an author's chilling tale. A young actor left the West Coast to fight demagogues. Our studios are defining VR. Oh, look out. And that foul-mouthed superhero once roamed these halls. This is Canadian content, and it's time we take credit for it. Starting now. In recent years, the Canadian public broadcaster's funding has been targeted by the government there, most recently in 2014. The then-Conservative government announced $150 million worth of cuts, which critics claimed could force the CBC to stop making documentaries, to do away with local newscasts, close half its offices and make a quarter of its workforce redundant by 2020. But the Liberal government, led by Justin Trudeau, elected in 2015, reversed those cuts and then announced $600 million over five years to bail out the struggling media companies. Colette Brin is a media professor at Laval University in Quebec City. I asked her what Canadians get from their public broadcaster, the CBC. Well, it has, of course, the traditional conventional television network and and specialised TV networks, uh, news and some arts uh, content. And then in radio, there are several stations in English and French. Uh, and, of course, several digital offerings, which are becoming more and more complex. Uh, I'm not sure I can follow all of them at once. It seems to be breaking into all these different pieces. And I think that's one of the big challenges going forward is finding some kind of cohesion in all of that. And how is it funded? Is it straight out of or predominantly out of taxation? Because we, we know that there's some uh, element of commercial funding, I think, online and on some of the television services. So overall, 70% of the funding is from government. So yes, taxing directly from our taxes. Uh, and the rest, the other sources, are about half of that is from advertising. Uh, and of course, traditional advertising is going down and digital advertising, just like in any other media company, is not going up enough to compensate. And when there's an Olympic year, if they get advertising from that or licensing revenue from that, like they did in 2018, well, then there's a bump in revenue in those years. And then there's all the subscriber fees for the specialized uh, channels. And what's growing, I guess, is the um, the application, the memberships for, for the online application, which they're trying to grow. Uh, which is which requires if you take the premium membership, it's a uh, five dollars a month. So I guess 
that's something they're they're looking to in the in the future to to compensate for the loss of advertising revenue. Ah, so that premium service does that involve maybe getting some sort of premium content that you won't get unless you don't pay, or is it perhaps a, you get a better service, less advertising, something like that if you pay? Exactly, pay the premium? exactly. I was going to say you get less content and the kind of content we don't like to see, which is advertising. So pretty much you get access to archives, to the full broadcast of the the news network and of the the regular network. And you get all the entertainment content ad-free. So that's, I guess, a value-added proposition. It feels a little strange to be paying for content from the public broadcaster. But then if you don't get the ads, I guess their bet is that there's something interesting for the consumer there. Yeah, that's interesting because they are state-owned television company, which is highly commercial, did at one point say they were considering uh, an ad-free premium service for its on-demand service. So we'll, we'll see if, if that becomes part of the mix. And, but- and also some, some uh, exclusive material like podcasts. Uh, I just saw this morning there is a, a legal reporter, a legal journalist, who does a podcast, one of those true crime podcasts, right, where mm-hmm. she tells stories. So those are very popular on you know, uh, Netflix platforms, the kind of crime documentary stories. So that's the example, the kind of paid content you can find on those on those platforms. And are there commercials, say, on what you might consider the main kind of network? Often there's a legacy network that's been around for years where most of the news and factual programs are that draws the biggest audience, uh, like, you know, the ABC has one, for example. Are, there, are the commercials running on that, that headline network? Yes, on television, yes, not on radio. There's no advertising on traditional radio. And there's been, over the years, many, many discussions about whether there should be no advertising during the newscast, at least. And it's just been such an important source of revenue. Of course, the argument of the broadcaster is we'll gladly remove the ads if the government funding can compensate for that loss. And right now, the discussion is more about digital advertising. Uh, Should the public broadcaster be taking in digital ads is that uh, unfair uh, competition for the, the private uh, networks? And they said they would, but they would want, uh, I think, something like $400 million in, in extra funding from the government, which they did not receive. But I, I must say that right now, the CRTC, which is the regulatory body here in Canada for, for uh, broadcasting and telecommunications, has just, just started this week Facebook consultations for license renewal of the CBC. And there is also a review underway of the uh, Broadcasting Act to bring us finally into the digital age. Hmm, so does that mean the CBC's mission and its place in the media landscape might, might change as a result of this license renewal process? Well, I think that the, the basic mandate, and what's really interesting about the mandate of the CBC is that it's not uh, that the kind of programming mandate that's in, in the law, in the Broadcasting Act, uh, is pr- platform neutral. It really is about bringing content to people, to audiences, so then it's a question of balancing which platforms, how to do it, how to deliver that, how to make the content maybe more responsive and more interactive, and also what kinds of, you know, what kinds of audiences are we reaching on these different platforms. So uh, they're trying to be a little bit of all things to all people. I think that's always been the history of the CBC. Also to offer, like other public broadcasters, kind of a, a high quality standard. We hope the private networks will try to match. So quality both in terms of the entertainment content, the arts content, and of course, news. And what's what's been added to that in recent years is to be digital innovators. So to try new things, to experiment, uh, to take chances, also to reach audiences which are harder to reach through traditional media. 
to be less commercial, of course, and the indigenous offerings have increased, and that's part of the the more recent preoccupations. And indeed, I wonder whether there are actually frictions between the different parts of CBC, for example, there's, you know, there's radio and television, and often television requires a bit more money and resource and, and can dominate within a broadcaster. There's also, of course, English and French language in Canada would be an issue, and indeed the, the Indigenous services and indeed Indigenous languages that you mentioned there. Do they all coexist happily? Uh, well, you know, I'm not inside the, the, the box, so I couldn't tell you everything that's going on inside. From what I can see, everyone is doing kind of their own thing. The problem is still, I think, working in silos, uh, people not knowing what other people are doing. So some repetition, some contradiction in the content sometimes between the different networks. A reporter was telling me recently that she was concerned of the the Indigenous content being kind of ghettoized into the Indigenous section of the website or the that that space which is supposed to be a showcase but kind of a almost a ghetto of indigenous content that if you're not specifically interested in that you might not hear about it or find out find out about it so that's that's a concern uh so i think that the 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 idea of silos and, and of difficulty communicating between those different sections is a bigger problem than actual frictions or I guess there's always frictions about resources and that kind of thing. Well, here in New Zealand, what the government is planning to do um, has been in the context of the government being told that the current media environment isn't sustainable, particularly for the commercial media companies that operate within it. Now, in Canada, uh, we note that about five years ago, the government demanded big cuts to public broadcasting. Then the Trudeau government, which came in after, reversed them. And then on top of that, uh, recently, that what's been called this big media bailout package. So not for public broadcasting, but I think six, $600 million of support over five years for the private media sector. Quite a bold move and uh, one one I think our private media companies here are kind of leaning on the government for something like that. Um, how's, how's that working? Well, it's not working yet. Um, it was suspended just before the election we had in October and I guess now we're kind of waiting to see how it will be put into place. It's all tax credits. So it's supposed to be retroactive to 2019. So some of these companies, some of them are actually almost bankrupt, you know, almost threatened by by closures. And these are uh, traditionally print media. So we're talking about text-based media, so not broadcasters. So this is for the traditional, you know, newspaper newsrooms. And that that program is, most of it is around a tax credit for uh, newsroom staff. And also in Quebec, there has been a, um, a package announced by the, the provincial government. So media in Quebec will get a little bit extra help. But we don't, we don't really know how that's going to work out yet. And I know that it's, there's, it's drawing a lot of attention internationally because it's, a, it's not quite a typical way to proceed. Mm, interesting. And another element of your system, which has an echo here, is uh, the Canada Media Fund, I think formerly known as um, the, the Cable Fund. And here in New Zealand, we have New Zealand On Air, which has a contestable fund, so uh, public money uh, can be given to media projects that are then uh, available for free to the to the public on a variety of networks, commercial and publicly owned. But this fund sounds interesting in that it provides programming both to the CBC, the public broadcaster, and to private networks. And I think, is it funded both by the government and by levying uh, digital media companies? Yes, exactly. Uh, about two-thirds, a little less than two-thirds, come from from cable fees, actually, from, from contributions from the, the cable companies. But, of course, as people are cutting their cords or shaving the, their cords, as, as we say, that revenue is increasing, uh, is, is decreasing, and the government funding has gone up slightly to compensate. So they have about 
$340 million, uh, a year to play with, well, to, to, to distribute in, in, in very serious programs. And some of them are for innovation, some of them are for commercial contents, and some of them are for web series. So they, they've really made that shift to digital content as well, and to encourage traditional broadcasters to really try new things. So some of it is really kind of experimental, innovative types of, of programming. And finally, Colette, I mean, here in New Zealand, the government's considering setting up an entirely new public broadcasting organisation encompassing radio and TV, I mean, effectively replacing the two state-owned outlets that it has. And um, they are thinking about a, a combination of taxes, advertising, sponsorship, maybe even subscriptions. Nobody really knows. This is all um, just a proposal. Uh, but if you were given a kind of blank sheet to design a public broadcaster, what do you think would be a good thing to do in this digital age we're now living in? That's a really, really interesting question. I mean, my own, I'm not, uh, of course, not. If it was my business to to start new companies, I would not be speaking to you as a professor. And uh, But uh, my, my reflex would be more to reform the, uh, the current structures than, uh, than to, to create new ones. That's Colette Brin, a media professor at Laval University in Quebec City in Canada. As we said earlier, the Cabinet here will shortly consider proposals for funding the media and an announcement is still expected on that before Christmas. Well, that's all we have for you from the Media Watch team for this week, but we'll be back again with plenty more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again for Media Watch at the same time next week here on RNZ National.